My name is Sishet K. Faber, and it's been seven months, and I seek penance from the Topic Lord. And I'm Phone, also known as Andrew. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, where we're here to infotain you and each other. At the same time? Well, let's hope. Dual purpose. Sishet, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Yeah, so I've been on Topic Lords once before, and I would like to plug getting a new job that is much healthier for your life and your lifestyle. Um, I used to be in academia, and then I got out, and I'm now in big enterprise IT, and it's a lot better. And so I would like to plug getting a new job that is better for your mental health. Yeah, I don't think that just getting a job, any job in, in uh, enterprise IT is going to do that, but I'm glad this one did. Yeah, that's true for sure, yeah. Yeah, I have to be a little bit careful because uh, you can kind of become the only person who knows uh, how the sausage is made. Yeah, not every job is going to send you the like the, the gay unicorn rainbow bag that they sent me. So yeah, you're, oh. you're right. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, and Phone, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, hi, I'm Phone. The only thing that to plug uh, is, I guess, The People's Republic of Walmart. It's a book. It's real good. Uh, the subtitle on it is uh, How the World's Biggest Corporations Are Laying the Foundation for Socialism. Oh. It, it, it's a very, very breezy read, and it, and it's pretty and it's pretty solid. I mean, just thinking about how economic planning like is a thing that exists, and it's happening right now, except it's being used to make the number go up. But what if it was used to make everybody's lives better? What if? Yeah, but what, what if they invented a new metric that isn't money? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. What if they found a way to measure human dignity? <laughs> oh, they would they would minimize for that in some like ML function for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. When you said the People's Republic of Walmart, like so, I um, deliberately avoid news as much as I can, and I feel okay doing this because I still get so much of it. I don't like. I still hear a lot about what's going on in the world, even though I'm I'm desperately trying to avoid it. If I did succeed, then I would feel bad, and I'd be like, "Fine, I'll go read the news again." But I do sometimes, as a result, have like surprising gaps in my understanding of what's going on in the world. Uh, and for a moment, I was like, "Is there a nation state now? A Walmart nation state?" I was very excited about this. Yeah, there's like a white Rhodesia Walmart Republic in Africa. I mean, there is the, uh, what's it called? That, uh, that old book slash game from forever ago, uh, Jennifer government and nation states where like the character's name is Jennifer government because she works for the government. And I guess her ex works for Nike. So he's like John Nike or something. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. It's as good a naming convention as convention as any. Yeah. That strikes me as kind of like snow crash, but you didn't understand the point kind of thing where it's like we're in the future and so that means that we're going to do names like this and that means that instead of cooper being you know mostly women who made booze you work for the government so you're jennifer government yeah there's only one kind of government job so we don't need to specify any further uh are we ready for to start on some topics Let yes us. i am deeply in need of topics yes uh says Het, your topic is why are a japanese adult video titles so long and weird yeah, so I'll flag this by saying, like, I know this podcast is explicit and has discussed, like, sex in the past, but I'll also say that, like, I enjoy pornography, and I think it's art, and I'm fine with it, but there's also a little bit of me that's like Ned Flanders in that I can't discuss it because it's so, it feels so personal to discuss it with somebody. Yeah, I get that. And so, like... I, I may censor some certain things here just for my own ability to discuss the topic, but I can assure you that this topic about Japanese adult video will be extremely boring. Okay. So normally I would say, let's start with some examples. I can give you an example. Okay, great. Because these are very striking. Like I've, I've noticed this pattern too, and it's really interesting. Yeah. So I got one open right now. I monitor. Her beloved younger stepbrother got a girlfriend. I'm jealous and want it so that he can't have sex with his girlfriend. So every day I empty all the yada 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 from his yada yada yada. 
Sumire Kuramoto. The yada yada yadas are not proper Japanese. And they're really like these works of microfiction that they tell you quite a lot, but then also nothing. But then they're also extremely sort of stilted in a weird way. And then also due to the, due to the translation, they're stilted. So, so yeah, they're a very special kind of microfiction. I always wondered whether like they were stilted in the original Japanese as well. So here is the very disappointing answer I can give to this and why this is going to be boring. Uh-huh. It has to do with the fact that with two different things. The first one is that Japanese is very information dense in geometric space. So if you think about English, we only have 26 letters and then we lay them out horizontally and then we derive meaning from that. And then in Japanese, they have kanji or in Chinese, they have hanzi. It's the same way. And, and they write vertically, so they've entered the second dimension. Well, they can write vertically, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, they've got, yeah, they're, they're playing four-dimensional chess with language, yeah. So, like, when you, when you look at this on, like, a DVD box cover, it doesn't read as long in Japanese because there's just a more efficient use of the space. And there's a really weird fact I can tell you, which is that, like, native Japanese speakers they read at a faster rate than native English speakers in their native languages because of this. That makes a lot of sense. And, and this isn't just, you know, oh yeah, you know, uh, pictograms or just kind of representative, you know, languages that use, you know, Chinese characters, for example, are able to, you know, maximize for space there. But I think another interesting thing, and I, I didn't think about this until just now, but there's kind of a Chuck Tingle effect going on. <laughs> where the all the Chuck Tingle books are like extremely, extremely long in, in title, and there's always the punchline of, you know, something in my butt for, for, for the most part. But it kinda has the same cadence there. Yeah, yeah for I sure. wouldn't be surprised if the Chuck Tingle books took inspiration from these. Yeah, I I it makes a lot of sense that I would have guessed um only the part where because the language is denser, they can fit more in the space you would allocate for a title. I would not have guessed that they would, the, the, like, Japanese readers would read that faster, or that they could absorb the information faster. Like, I would still think of that as being, like, this is a very involved... This this is, like, what I would expect if I was, like, I'm past step one, I'm past looking at the cover, I'm going to look at the back of the box and read the paragraph there... Like, I'm, in, I'm more invested in this. Yeah, it feels like informationally, like it's a lot to take on. Yeah. But the, the weird thing is that actually, because of the way the language is constructed, um, people's brains chunk information differently. And so there's an, uh, there's an amount of stuff that you can tell at a glance that is just different in different languages because of the way this works. Yeah, there's also the the aspect where German's kind of infamous for it, where you just keep adding nouns until you have a word that is you know 36 characters long, but it's a very very specific thing, and there is something in that uh, or similar to that in Japanese, where you can just keep adding nouns and nouns, and um, th this is actually used in uh, Shin Godzilla to loop it back to a previous episode where there's a gag where this guy's title just keeps expanding and expanding. And it's it's a two-second gag, but it literally takes up the entire bottom of the screen just due to uh, events in the movie. Yeah, and then, and then there's a second thing, which I'm going to bring this all crashing down and disappoint everybody. I'm ready. This I'm is, excited. This is actually a database field issue. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That yes. was actually going to be my other guess, that like they machine translated the wrong field. Yeah. So the thing that you need to know about Japanese pornography. Is that it's key value pair. The one thing, the only thing that you ever need to know is key value pair. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of regulation within the industry by the industry itself. And one of the things that they do is that different studios, and it used to be like different production houses, but now it's sort of like it's devolved. And so you have sort of almost in the way that you have different imprints for books, you have different imprints for pornography in Japan. 
and they'll have their 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 name. And so the the one I read for the example is from an imprint called BeeFree, and then they have a short ID for their title, which is BF661, which is the actual real title of the movie. Yeah, that that does seem like it's uh they just shifted the all the fields in the database over to the left one. Or like, like that should be like an ID number or an ISBN or something. It kind of is. <laughs> yeah, and in this database, yeah. they label it as DVD ID, but that's actually sort of the real title. Because when you look at the way that um and I know this because I've I've been into the piracy and scene release stuff, that when you look at how they label stuff, the the leading indicator is always this ID for this short ID for the imprint and then the ID number for the DVD itself, um, which makes sense, but also is like, no, it, like that's really the actual title. And when I say imprint, I really mean that, which is that like if you're into a certain kind of genre of pornography, then you're going to know this imprint. You're going to be looking for this imprint. And this kind of structure is very similar to Japanese manga. So if you go into a manga store in Japan, it's not organized by author or genre. It's organized by imprint, by publisher. And so this sort of way of thinking about content and who produces it and what it's like is very natural to Japanese people. Like, oh, if you like this kind of porn, then you should look at this section of all of these titles. And then the things that we are regarding as titles, these kinds of microfiction things, are actually kind of subtitles in that, in that sort of space. Yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense then that like if you your view on this is, you know, you're looking at lists of torrents, it's not very helpful if the uploader just writes the the ID number, writes like the three letters and then the three numbers or whatever in the title. So they're probably going to add more informative stuff to the title field, uh, which is this description. Yeah, or or it, it is. Like there are certain genres that are or certain imprints that are so specific that people will follow only that imprint because that's what they like. And so like that is actually enough information for a lot of people. But if you're not familiar with Japanese pornography and you're coming at it from outside, then you do need more information. You're going to sort it differently. And you get it. I unfortunately, <laughs> uh, my brain has been poisoned by it. And yes, I get it. <laughs> Oh no! I mean, everybody everybody gets the information. <laughs> oh right, because it, yeah, it, it functions as like a subgenre. Because it's like there's always something about these imprints. It's like this is their key thing. Like it might be either lesbians or it's BDSM or something. And then all of the ones within that list are going to be sort of variations on that theme in kind of a musical sense of like this is going to be the one that has this thing, and this is going to be the one that has this thing. But the the thing for Western audiences is that they're going to chase more specific kinds of fetishes that cross these imprints. And so it's like, well, this is the one that has a specific fetish I want. And it turns out that there's a bunch of these from a bunch of different imprints that have that. But then for other people, it's like, no, 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 I just want this imprint. And what they choose to do now is like their, their creative decision. And then the other thing, which is a, a side thing is that, what's actually being translated as the title is basically, as you said, that a lot of it is stuff from the front of the box and the back of the box. And it's basically as if you sort of looked at a Cosmo and you were like, Oh, the title of this magazine is Cosmopolitan 10 ways to drive him mad in bed. And you know, three side dishes for labor day. And like, they just mashed it all together without any regard for any layout. And so a lot of like the incongruous stuff comes from the fact that this is all sort of flavor text that's been translated, that's being added to the description as a title. Uh, but in that case, it's kind of amazing that it is also of a piece as, as much as it is. You mean like it does, ma- it, it does manage to make as much sense as it does? Yeah, like as a story. Yeah, I mean, so that's a, that's, yeah, that's another side tangent, but like, so when I say like the Japanese porn industry is self-regulating, like there was never really a law in Japan that porn had to be censored, even if that's what people think, you know, outside Japan. 
that's mostly a self-regulation thing of like the easier the porn is to get, then the more likely it is to be censored. And so if it's online porn, it's very likely to be completely uncensored. But if it's porn that you're going to see at a hotel, then it's going to be censored because there's some maybe easier way that some child might see it. Or if it's like a magazine you find at a convenience store, it's going to be censored. And so, and what that, and what the censorship does is it makes them have to be more creative about the situations involved. There needs to be a story because it's not, you know, in Western pornography, there's a lot of stuff that is very biologically focused. <laughs> we we want to, we, you know, like, like that's, I guess that's the Ned Flanders coming through, but like. <laughs> it's, it's gynecological. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very clinical in a certain way of like, there's got to be this kind of thing going in this other kind of thing. And we're going to see all of it. And like, that's the, that's the point. And then when you, when all that stuff is censored, it's like, well, we need another way to get you in the door. And so we're going to build up artifice. How else could we make this interesting and exciting? Yeah. And so the censorship has gone away, but people still like that. And so people still expect that from their pornography. And so there's still a lot of creativity there of like, we need to put this situation or that situation or otherwise it's like, what are we even doing? So the, the one thing I wanted to bring up, the titles are very reminiscent of like 18th century book titles or chapter titles. So an example I have here is the full title of Robinson Crusoe is the life and strange surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe of New York Mariner who lived eight and 20 years all alone in an uninhabited Island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river of Oroonoke, having been cast on shore by shipwreck, wherein all the men perished, but himself with an account of how he was at last as strangely delivered by pirates. And now in the, in the lens through the lens of this discussion, I have to wonder like, how much of this is the same thing where this is this was meant to be a description? Oh, I think it's exactly the same thing. I mean, you know, movie trailers used to give the whole plot of the film away and that didn't go away until like 1980, maybe even later. So like I I think that a lot of it is that kind of style that's gone away in western media but then still persists in ways in non-western media. I mean, I think it still happens like especially given modern movies and then also like even modern video games, like they they really really want to tell you what's well what's inside. Yeah, but they're not usually like writing a whole like work of microfiction on the cover to do it. Like it's almost like um, I was thinking about this a, a, about a week ago. It's like that one Fiona Apple album, you know, when the pawn. That's like a actually like a whole poem, and everybody was mad about it. But it's just like it's what she she wanted to do, and at one time maybe that would have been like normal or whatever. But it's just like. It's a stylistic choice. The craft of making cover art is taking, you want to take the entire plot of the movie and turn that into a single image that represents the movie and will sell people on it. Are we, uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. Yep. Sounds good. Phone, your topic is 3DS Street Pass. Yeah. So uh, 3DS Street Pass is really, really neat. And it's also incredibly incompatible with kind of American society. I, I had a decent success with it in uh, when I rode the train in San Francisco on a regular basis. That's the thing is that it, it, if you have public transit, you're going to be close to other people. And San Francisco is also, you know, kind of self-selecting for people that might have a 3DS on them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like. So, so describe this. What What is this? feature it is a feature of the 3ds yeah it's a feature of the 3ds where if you leave the wi-fi on it would be in a low power mode and you could do a handshake with up to 10 people at once um before you had to go clear them out and and stuff like that so you're gonna like you're gonna connect to other people's 3ds's and they will exchange some information based on what games you've both been playing and whatnot yeah the 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 information is uh your me like what your hat is on there, like there's different hats that you could put on your me. Uh, what your favorite color is, uh, what you've been playing recently, geographic area, and like a little snippet, you know, like a maybe 20 character long thing. A little quote you could give yourself. Yeah, I always, um, I always set my 
most recent played game to health and safety information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, you got to be safe. But uh, the the thing that like I found interesting, so I didn't get a 3DS until after I was out of college. So I, I'm, I'm not that old, but I do understand that that's what an old person would say. But uh, the only times that I would, that I could reliably get street passes is whenever I would go through airports and stuff like that. And the the first time that I hung out with Sushet in real life was at their apartment in in Japan, and there were a boatload of kids that walked past the apartment. So my street pass queue was always full. And it was very, very interesting to see those games and, you know, play around with it. So one of the games that was in there that was kind of included was a little RPG thing where basically you just throw Mies at it, uh, at at a boss. And then usually within a week or two, you'd be able to beat it if you're actually reliably, you know, grabbing street passes and stuff like that. But if you're just kind of living in suburbia... Unless if you had some neighbors, kids who were kind of close, like it's pretty rough in terms of actually getting organic street passes and stuff yeah, like I that. Yeah, I mean, here's the trick. You need to go where children hang out and you need to get close to them, but not so <laughs> close that people think you're think you're with them or trying to get, get close to them. You have to like just be on the other side of a wall. Yeah, um... Uh, unfortunately, that comes off slightly bad for some reason. And uh, yeah. well, <laughs> what if you're what if you're facing the other way? What if you're not? Oh, I didn't even see the kids. I'm facing the other way, and there's a wall between me and them. You're just walking backwards into the playground, staring at your 3ds. <laughs> yes. Well, listen. I, I I may or may not have hung out at a individual at a particular playground on the swing for about two to three weeks until. Um, I was asked to leave. It, it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it could be very, very interesting. Unfortunately, these new types of games, it's difficult to actually get them to work. And I think that the last big one was probably uh, Pokemon Go, which actually got a bunch of people, you know, out the door. And that didn't require a piece of specialized hardware. It was, hey, you can just download it on your phone and then go walk around and stuff like that. But I think that um, some machine on Pokemon Go is you know, gone away. And I don't think that there's too much interaction between people uh, in Pokemon Go outside of, uh, I guess, the gym battles and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You don't really get to, you don't see the other people in the world and you don't see evidence that they were there unless they uh, took over a gym and left something behind. Yeah. And so that's a, and that that goes back to the point that uh, Phone brought up about the 3DS Street Passes that like in Japan you still see people playing Pokemon Go. Like, there is, there are not as reliably as there were before, but about once a month, I'll see, like, a, a weird gaggle of people in a strange place, like, around, like a, like, a traffic intersection or, like, a station in a weird place or something, and I'll look at them and they'll be like, oh, like, these are Pokemon Go people. And I once was, I was walking to work in this area that like doesn't have a lot of like foot traffic generally. And I saw a lady walking around the university campus with like three phones. And I was like, (laughs) that lady is a drug dealer. She's making a drug deal. And then like, I walked past her and I like, I looked back and I stared at her phones and she was like, you want any Pidgey candies? Like, yeah, yeah. She like, she was deep into Pokemon go. And I was like, wow, the world is different now. I can't, I don't, I don't know. But then also, did she have like a clipboard to hold them with, or was it in three phones in her hands? She had one on a lanyard, and she had two stacked in her hand, and then she had like a tablet too. It was it was nuts. Like it was, uh, and I saw her for like a month, just like every day. I'd be walking to work, and she'd be walking by on the campus. Yeah, when life is more dense, like you have, you can do stuff like that. But then in America, where things even in like. Like if maybe if you're in like, you know, New York proper, one of the two cities, like you can kind of get that feeling, but it's like, you can get that feeling like living most places people live in Japan. And so this is one of the, definitely one of those Nintendo things that's like, oh, they like one of the reasons they can't do internet stuff. Well, is just like, oh, they're thinking about Japan first and not considering like the rest of the world and, and 3ds street pass 
is to a certain extent like a victim of that. Yeah, I do remember like listening to stuff at the time and people just talking about, oh yeah, you know, going to E3 or going to you know some in a, uh, some anime convention, being like, oh yeah, you know, Street Pass is awesome. You know, I I was stopping every ten minutes to clear out my queue to you know just grab as many people as possible and to fill out the map and things like that. Yeah, there's a friend that Phone and I have that works for Sega now, and he was deep into 3DS Street Pass, and we would go to TGS every year, and he would just smash. He would just be, like, on the 3DS, just, like, every five minutes, just, like, smashing the thing to get progress in whatever the new game was, and, like, trying to... He was trying to collect all of the territories, because, like, you set your home territory on the 3DS when you set it up, and it passes that information, and so, like, when he got 100% on that, he was, like, so over the moon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been I've been there where you, you, you know, you're at like the best place I've been for a 3DS Street Pass is is PAX. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. the perfect environment for it. It's uh, self-selecting. Yeah, especially because like you don't you don't need internet access to make for it to work. But I remember you know learning the trick where like okay, I don't need to actually play the game right now. I can just pull in this collection of 10 people yeah, and then another 10 will queue up in the out- outer queue. And then later when I have more time, I can play through this whole list of 20 people and playing all the, like all the mini games I had with all 20 people. That's so onerous. That's such a long, like, and it's such a distinct, like it's such a different experience from like the joy of, oh, I, I, got, I got one street pass on my train ride today. That's great. I get to play this game once with one person versus I if I want to be efficient, I have to do it with these 20 people now so that I can collect the next 20 people. Yeah, it is one of those things I gave up on for sure because of that reason that it's like either you have way too many or you have like none. It's feast or famine, yeah. And, and and that's like also an environment thing where if you just have it in your bag and you could you know that you can reliably you know get ten people on your way to work like when you, on your lunch break or something like that you can just clear those out and you know that that's a ten minute experience you know instead of uh, doom scrolling on Twitter or whatever you can you know break out your 3ds and and go clear out that that and then on the way home you get another ten but with going to like a convention like PAX or whatever. It's, this is the only time that I'm going to be able to get street passes. <laughs> this is the only time that I can actually, you know, do it. So it's very, very maximalist that way. Uh, before we move on, I wanted to tell a story about uh, Pokemon Go. Uh, my mom plays Pokemon Go a lot. Like, to the point where I would say she has a problem, except that it's good to exercise. So it's a good problem, I guess. Could be worse. You could be uh, playing the critically uh, acclaimed MMORPG Final Fantasy XIV now with the free expansion up to level sixty. <laughs> does does that help you walk around? It does not. It does not. Okay. <laughs> well, it helps you walk around in Eorzea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and bef- before, and we, we we occasionally would play together. And before we did that, we played Ingress together, which was right. Yeah. Niantic's previous game previous ar style game where you walk around the world and do things with portals and i remember visiting her in the south bay and deciding i'm just going to go for a walk and she asked me to take her phone with me because she hadn't done like some collection thing uh yet today and so i was walking around like willow Glen, dual wielding dual wielding like two ingresses and uh i was like hammering on some dude's portal i i I remember this guy's name it was name his username was i can get you a toe (laughs) the uh, precursor to uh, let me solo her (laughs) right and i was just hammering on this dude's portal and someone comes out of a house and and comes up to me and says hey how you doing and it was i can get you a toe who had been getting like alerts that someone was taking his portal down that's pretty funny. And he talked me out of it. He like he just asked. He basically just asked me not to do it because it was his like. There are, there are um, achievements you can get for holding a portal for a certain amount of time. And he hadn't had his hundred day portal yet or whatever. 
Uh, and he, this was, this was his hundred day portal, very heavily armored. And, and this was like his f- final line of defense, I guess, was to like come outside and beg for his portal's life. <laughs> the social game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that is one way of, of dealing with the problem is, you know, taking it to meat space. I know that there's uh, some, some similar stories with like Eve online, you know, who, who knows how, how, uh, truthful they are about, you know, cutting off pow- uh, people's power and stuff like that, <laughs> like during space fights and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's intense. That's some intense shit. But uh, I, I just remembered, like, I know that this was like a big thing, especially um, towards the late period of the aughts, was, uh, was it Foursquare? Yeah, it was Foursquare, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the check-in thing where you could be the king of, I don't know, like like some cafe or coffee shop or whatever. And people were min-maxing, you know, being the, uh, the the mayor. I think that's what it was. It was like the mayor, not the king, of, of various locations. Yeah, yeah. I never, never had the opportunity. That that predated when I had a um, smartphone, so I never figured out how that game worked. Was it just a matter of like visiting it as many times as possible, or was there something more involved? You had to go and then open the app on your phone and then hit like the check-in button, and then it would read your geolocation. And yeah, and it wasn't really that. And then you'd close the app and open it again. You get credit again if you do it again. No, no, no. It wasn't that bad, but it also wasn't like a game. It was mostly like, what if we could build some kind of social network around physical spaces via geolocation? And it was definitely like a precursor to like what Niantic did with Ingress and then later Pokemon Go. But it wasn't a game. The 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 game was. Basically, posting on 2008 era Twitter, I'm the mayor of I don't know the the McDonald's down the road or something like that. The the king of Burger King. <laughs> Are we ready for another topic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my topic is service at Lou's Diner is incredible. Uh, this is actually predicated on you having seen the. Have, have you seen the movie Back to the Future? Yes. Yes. Okay, so so then I can I can link to the clips in the show notes and just talk about this. So there's a scene in Lou's Diner, which is the the '50s era cafe uh, that appears in the movie several times, where uh, George McFly orders a chocolate milk, slaps a coin down on the table, and receives the cho- receives the chocolate milk in less than a second, like it just arrives. And this is like uh, an incredibly busy cafe. Like you, you, it is full. The crowd is hopping, and he gets his chocolate milk immediately, which is in- inhumanly fast. Well, I mean, you, you, you say that. However, like the taps back then didn't have the the limiter, so the flow rate on the chocolate milk tap was you know just that much yeah, faster. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the the ceiling was not covered in brown liquid. Uh, so I don't think that that um, I don't think that theory holds water. Uh, we were talking about in a previous episode about the fastest vending machine in the world. Pretty sure it wasn't this fast. Uh, and you can say that maybe Lou knew what what George was going to order. Oh, I see. Uh, because George is a regular. And he's had the chocolate milk up ready to go. But there's a scene earlier in the movie where Marty, uh, there's this whole back and there's this whole back and forth where like Marty doesn't know what you can order in a cafe in the fifties. And he asks for a Pepsi free, which is an anachronism now too. That's uh, it refers to sugar free Pepsi. But after some back and forth, he eventually just asks for something without any sugar in it. And then Lou just like pulls a cup of coffee from under the counter. Like it's just ready to go. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Like, Lou is, like, an amazing human. Yeah, I like the stuff that that implies, but also I liked what you were saying earlier, like, maybe George McFly was, like, a regular here, and so he knew. But then also, uh, I misunderstood that, and I thought maybe what you were saying is that Lou is a time traveler and knew what was going to be ordered. <laughs> and so... that it, Yeah, no, that makes a lot more sense, actually. And it's thematically fitting. Right. There's just this random guy. He's a Tom Bombadil of the Back to the, Back to the Future universe. Yeah. Isn't that also, like, the era of um, automats? 
where you have kind of this contactless like service thing where there's just no nah, like, automats were like thirties, but like, but it, I mean, but yeah, kind of. Yeah, we need to bring them back. Funny enough, they are coming back a little bit. And when I was in Chicago, there's an automat that I went to that you know you just punch in your order and then you go to the locker to go to go pick it up. And I'm not sure if um, if if COVID times accelerated that at all. But it's it's weird on just seeing the cycle of that stuff. But having you know ready to go stuff like having a coffee under the under the counter that's a little bit weird. But it was also the fifties, and I can't tell you if that's the way that coffee was stored back then. Yeah, yeah, no. This is this is something that I want to do. Like when I have house guests, is like, yeah, do you want a cup of coffee? Just open up a cabinet <laughs> and just pull. Here you go. Yeah, the thing I wonder about this is like. I feel like service at a lot of places used to be faster in the U.S. because there wasn't so much menu bloat. Like, everything wasn't customized. And everybody's like, oh, man, do you really want that hamburger that was under a heat lamp? It's just-in-time production. Also, Lou's Diner is hopping, right? So, like, it's Rush. You know, maybe they have a cup of coffee and a shake or a chocolate milk ready to go. Like... Oh, that's true. Yeah, they might just have, like, one of everything ready. Yeah, like, they don't have 50 things on the menu, probably. They probably have, like, eight things on the menu. So, when you have eight things, you can actually do that, and then now everything is your way, and so um, everything is made to order because everybody cares about freshness, and so it's become sort of more complicated in a lot of ways, I think, to run a restaurant in the US. You do still see limited menus in Japan though. Like there's it's it's pretty common. Yeah, I think a part of that, like I was kind of joking about it earlier, but like the just in time production and like, you know, the the Toyota model of just have the bare minimum and kind of do it as things uh come in versus uh because that way you can eliminate waste and things like that. But I know that they do it still at Fast food restaurants like McDonald's, Burger King, and stuff like that, where they'll have a a queue of hamburgers that are ready to go, you know, because people would come in and order a Big Mac, and okay, well, you can probably just line up five five Big Macs, and then you can get the turnaround on that's really really quick, right? Yeah, I still don't think that. I think that's kind of gone away a lot in the U.S. Like, I think a lot of stuff is made to order now, but then again, I haven't lived in the U.S. in ten years, so I don't know. I mean, even if it's assembled to order, it's still made out of like they 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 had that the burger patty cooking uh, yeah. before you came in. That is a thing. Like all the yeah. all the components are individually prepared beforehand. Yeah, like when I go get when I go get my breakfast at Japanese McDonald's, it's definitely assembled to order. Like they're pulling the egg from a bin of eggs, and then they're pulling the cheese, and then yeah, like that's that's also true. Is that that's sort of the just in time thing that Phone was talking about of just a hybrid of like. Okay, we've cooked all the ingredients, and then we're gonna assemble them as we go. Like, so what do they have at Japanese McDonald's that I wish I could get here? Uh, it's not. It's a subset, really. It's not really a superset, unfortunately. So, no spaghetti and blankets. No, there's one thing I really like that I probably I think they probably have in the U.S., which is a mega muffin. <laughs> that doesn't ring a bell. So the mega muffin is like an egg McMuffin, but it's got cheese and bacon. And an egg on it, as well as the sausage patty, and then ketchup. Yeah. So it's it's like a burger. Yeah, that sounds like a no brainer for the American audience. Yeah, and it's cheap too. It's like three hundred and fifty yen. It is like cheaper than any of their lunch, like hamburger sandwiches, and it's huge. Yeah, I, I want to say that, like, especially on the breakfast side of things, th- this is cheating uh, because I live in the south. But places like Bojangles and things like that have the biscuit game unlock just because it's it's not an egg McMuffin. You're going to Bojangles to get a, a country ham biscuit or something like that. But the the 300 yen, 350 yen, if, if you just do the 100 to 1 conversion, that's still a little bit hard to beat, especially with what you get on it. Yeah, the price on that is good. But Japanese McDonald's, like, I don't think they have pancakes. Like, there's not the scrambled eggs kind of stuff that you get in the U.S. McDonald's breakfast. They don't have the McGriddle. I no, they don't have the McGriddle. It's it's very much like a subset, and it's like whatever you could make with like a fresh egg and a sausage patty and a muffin. They kind of have, but there's no, and then they have all the coffee and stuff, and you can also get like nuggets and and uh, hash browns. But there's no like 
bacon egg or not uh yeah like uh bacon egg and cheese bagel because they don't do bagels as much here so so yeah it's not unfortunately the uh japanese mcdonald's breakfast is not great but their lunch and dinner there are some hard hitters in there that you're not going to get in america for sure very exciting are we uh are we ready for another topic yes let's do it so for this topic we're going to be reading the poem uh the revolution will not be televised by gil scott heron would either of you like to read this or shall I? I think you should read it. Okay. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The re- revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon, Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog maws confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer and Award Theater, and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. <laughs> the revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner, because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mays pushing that shopping cart down the block on the, on the dead run, or trying to slide that color television into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on a rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lifes of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no, will no longer be so damn relevant. And women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be, will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of hairy-armed women liberationists and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised. Will not be televised. Will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. And there it is. It's very, very good. Yeah, when I when I hear that, I really feel like there's such grace in the game of soccer. It makes me cry. Go on. No, nah, it's so I know um, your wife does not listen to the show usually, unfortunately, but that's a reference to Survivor. So, um, okay, okay. So All if right. she were to hear that clip, she might laugh or something. But I don't know. Anyway, it's good. I'm sorry to to break. I'll, I'll let her know there's a joke she will like in an episode. I won't tell her which episode. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Yeah, the, the 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 thing that is, uh, I'm not going to say entertaining, um, but I have heard clips of this uh, very frequently uh, because of the area that I live in and the college that I went to, where the college station is 88.1 WKNC, and they use this as one of the bumpers about how the revolution will not be televised because the radio station is called uh, Revolution. Or it was mm-hmm. at the time. Oh, because it, it's going to transmit it over radio. Yes. Oh, yeah. It will be it will be radioized, but not televised. Oh, that makes sense. That that checks out. Yeah. the uh, The one thing I fixate on, which is super dumb, is the fact that they misspell Natalie Wood because she's not Natalie Woods. She's Natalie Wood, and I'm. I think probably the site is uh, like this is genius, so it's probably accurate, but. It bumps me, and I don't know why, and it's not super important, but it also, it shouldn't, it doesn't really bump me, it's just sort of like, 
I understand sort of the uh, the vibe it's going for. Like, I think this may have been done on purpose because it's like those people are not important. So they're not going to be part of the revolution. So it's sort of, but it's a kind of a very minor detail that my brain fixates on. There's a similar thing about Francis Scott Key where there's an extraneous S at the end. Ah, yeah. But yeah, like it's... Those are it's, uh, uh, traps that were, were set out yeah. to... Yeah, uh, no, it's a shibboleth. Yeah. If you if you know these people's real names, you you will not be televised. Yeah, so I had been wondering, like I had... I also heard clips of this throughout my life, and I was kind of under the impression that it was about how the revolution will not be televised because the revolution is like it happens in your mind and the television is not a good medium for interiority. But I think that's actually what's happening here is the revolution will not be televised because the television is an arm of the oppressor and will be shut down as the idea. Yeah. Like I always heard this in like, cause I grew up in the eighties. And so like, for me, clips of this would be played and I always assumed that like this was like the revolution will not be televised and kind of like the Max Headroom kind of sense, not like in a kind of 60s sense of like it won't be covered. Like it's just like television is not important kind of thing and not like like you said, the real point, which is like, you know, they're not going to cover it because it doesn't help them to cover it. So that's actually a. That's actually not a. That's a point you made, not a point that I made, but it's a good one. Oh, I just, oh sorry, I thought, I just I thought that was the point that you were making. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's a great point. That's a great interpretation of this. I was gonna. My interpretation was that television will be ended as part of the revolution. Like the concept. Oh, of it. I see. Okay, but I actually like yours better. We, we, we can all dream about that, but you know, not today. I was I was all excited when when television went away in like two thousand eight. Like broadcast TVs just gone, and it was replaced. But then I found out it was going to be replaced by digital TV. It was just <laughs> what the why? Why tease me like this? Well, I, I mean, at least cable television is gone, and that um, you know instead you're paying 150 dollars for 15 different streaming services. <laughs> Maybe you are. <laughs> yeah, the thing that really um, that bothers me about the U.S. a lot when I go back is that. Like, broadcast TV isn't gone, depending on your demographic. Like, if you're in our demographic of people who use a lot of, a lot of digital things, we don't watch much TV at all, for real, like, on broadcast. But, like, my stepmom does. And so, like, I go back and I see advertisements for movies and TV shows that they look like parodies of things you would see on, like, Adult Swim of what American TV is like. And it's just, it's so weird that there's this zombie corpse of broadcast TV that still, like, shambles forth into the future. And I don't know how much longer it's going to last, but it feels like it's going to be there for a while. And it's its very creepy. It, it, it kind of dovetails with what you're saying about the people who own the television stations and stuff like that. Like, they obviously have a vested interest in the system as it is. And, I mean, it's a... You know, blast out propaganda is, is, is kind of the the super short of it. And if you're trying to have a revolution, if you're trying to subvert that, it is explicitly in the TV station owner's, you know, interest to not televise it and to also muddy the waters as to what's going on on the ground. Yeah, I think that I think we were seeing that happening for sure. Yeah, it's definitely weird. And then there's also the weird part where, like, modern television, like, they know they can't not cover it. Like, there's stuff with, you know, the pandemic and, like, global warming and all this stuff where it's like they have to cover it. But then the angle they choose to cover it is so, like, weird and orthogonal. So, like, there's a clip going around from, like, British TV of, like, this morning show talking to a meteorologist and he's saying, like, yeah, it's really hot. A lot of people are dying. And the host is like, yeah, but that's like so like depressing. Like, can't we just enjoy the weather? Like, it's so nice outside, really, right? And he's like, no, it's not really nice outside. People are dying. This is a problem. And she's like, yeah, but actually, though, it's kind of low-key. It's nice outside. 
and and it it's just it's shocking to see sort of the the ways in which stuff sort of goes through that prism of like they don't ignore it they do cover it but it's from such this weird angle that you're not gonna know that the revolution is happening and so in some ways the poem is sort of like wrong in that it will be televised but in a very strange way (laughs) in a way that that seems like from a completely alien perspective to your own yeah yeah are we uh are we ready for another topic sure sure phone your topic is people that do things yeah so uh people that do things um the thing that kind of brought this up is everybody knows of a person that says i'm gonna do x and then the next time that you see them they have done x and Whatever that might be, it can be fairly impressive. And uh, I have two examples in mind that are genuinely, you know, impressive. So one of the people that Sissette and I know wanted to work for Sega. So they got a job as a community manager at Sega. And they are now a producer at Sega. And they have produced several games for Sega. So it's just... It's like, okay, you know, set your goal and basically work towards it and and did it. And, and I always find that, you know, always kind of inspirational, but also a little bit scary just because, you know, it's like, dang, it is possible to change the world or to, you know, change your world at least. To set set the context here, when I say I'm going to do the dishes, I, like tonight, I would say there's like a 50-50 chance that I'm actually going to do the dishes tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's also like the stakes of that too, where, you know, I'm, I'm sure that our buddy isn't keen on doing the dishes or maybe doesn't do the dishes all the time. Well, he still owes you money. I mean, that's fine. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say he was going to pay you back though. That's true. That's true. The, the, the other example that is, um, it actually got a little bit of news coverage, uh, when it happened. Uh, so, uh, the, the, the inverse of this is, you know, like, People who just kind of get focused on, um, I, I call it like bench racing or like making shop. So there's this thing where, um, in hobbies, where people get super obsessed about the details and they, uh, and they want to maximize for having the best setup or something like that. So, for example, in woodworking, people will go out of their way to get the best tools so that they can make jigs to make more tools, to make more tools, to make more tools. They don't make furniture. They don't make really anything. They make shop furniture and stuff that will enable them to, you know, make more jigs and things like that. But they're maximizing for, you know, not actually, like, producing furniture or, do, or doing stuff like that. It, this happens a lot also in language learning communities where people fo- uh, fixate on what is the best way to learn and this is this is going back from forever ago, where somebody posted on a Japanese language learning forum that was like, hey, I'm interested in Japanese. I think I want to work for Nintendo. And I think that person only made like two or three posts on the forum. But then I think it was like six or seven years later, he was in the credits for Breath of the Wild as like a physics guy. We're working on the Havoc Engine stuff. I remember this. I think he was working on, like, uh, Critter AI. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it it something on, on the systems level, but it's just like, dang, like, everybody kind of, you know, sh- uh, shit on him. And it was just like, oh, no, you know, you, you'll never be able to do that or whatever. And he just kind of went out and, and did it. And it's just like, oh, that's, that's genuinely impressive. I, I think it also varies, like, as to kind of what you're interested what you are interested in and kind of you know channeling your energy and stuff like that so um one of the things that i wanted to do uh, recently as in the last few years is i kind of want to get good at tetris i don't want to become a pro because i'm old and i'm not that fast but i wanted to get faster and be more reliable and stuff like that so i learned how to switch from uh using the gamepad to play tetris to using the keyboard and there was a huge learning curve there just because i didn't have the muscle memory for it is this is this a known thing that you're you're better off playing Tetris on a keyboard? 
Yeah, you are for sure. One million percent. Yeah, hundred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it, it's more of like uh, the distance of the travel is um, like D pads are a little bit goofy. Um, in particular, if you think about like the Switch controller, like the Switch Pro controller, which has a notoriously kind of awful D pad, where it had where it has a lot of uh, misdrops and stuff like that. It's it's a little bit miserable for that for for stuff like that. Yeah, it has to do with like key input, like repeat delay. That like hyper tapping is the actual best strategy for every Tetris that's ever been made by any company. And so like you see this on the NES and then it's also true for even like the Grandmaster variants that even though those are built for a joystick, when you play them on a keyboard and you can hyper tap, then you can actually do moves that weren't ever intended to be able to be done on a joystick. So basically, and some of this is Tetris company stuff and some of this is just legacy stuff, but like, yeah, hyper tapping becomes a thing. You need to be able, you can tap faster than the key input repeat delay. So, um, so keyboard actually works best for Tetris. Yeah. I'd have to take a look to see like, where fast people kind of end up in terms of, um, you know, key inputs uh, using the gamepad. But one of the one of the more notable Tetris players, when they were playing Tetris 99 on, um, you know, just streaming and stuff like that, they would actually t- use the Joy-Cons because the Joy-Cons have the individual buttons there, but they would reverse, like, the Joy-Cons. So they would hold the left one in their right hand and the right one in their left hand. Because that's how they played on the keyboard and stuff like that. So that that was a little bit, you know, interesting to see. But um, I routinely get blown out by people that can drop like 120, you know, pieces a minute. And I, I top out at, you know, maybe 70 sustained. Like I can pick up to 85 maybe. And I, I can only imagine that on a gamepad, like most people would top out at around 80 or 90. Yeah, one of the things about the people that do things topic is that this is going to be presumptuous of me, but I'm going to put myself in the bucket of people who have done things. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I, I said I was going to move to Japan. I said I was going to learn Japanese and do interpreting. And then I did that. And then I also got yelled at by a lot of people online. Like, I got told at one point I was making friends the wrong way in Japan. I was going to these English events, and I was like, explicitly going to like make friends and practice Japanese and I got told by somebody like the way that you're building this out is really creepy and we don't like it and and then also I got told like well you're not native bilingual so you'll never be able to do interpreting and then a year later I had a bunch of Japanese friends and I was doing interpreting at TGS so and then I've stayed in Japan since then and my job now involves a lot of speaking Japanese in meetings and the fact that I can do that is a is a big thing and then, Jim, you mentioned, like, you know, if you say you're going to do the dishes, that's 50-50 on whether or not you're going to be able to do that as, like, a mundane task. But then, like, I would sort you into somebody who has done things because, like, you built frog fractions. And, like, yeah, maybe that was, like, a one-off sort of passion project you poked at and you, you got it done and it got noticed. But then you also did Glitterbitten Grove, which was a much more focused kind of project. Yeah. And so, like, that's a that's a thing that, that you did – And so I find this a lot with people who can do things. And even, you know, I joked about the guy that works at Sega owing phone money, but it's like, it, it turns out that like being able to do certain things that you're able to focus on is extremely different from being able to take care of anything else in your life that you may actually need to take care of more. Yeah. Yeah. That presumably like, yeah, people aren't hyper competent at everything at once. Yeah, it just seems that way from the outside, which is why Facebook is so toxic. And so even if you're not one of these people, who, like if, if you feel like you're one of these people who hasn't done something, like to go back to my previous point from a previous episode, you've probably done something very interesting, but you don't consider it interesting because you're too close to it. But then also just because you feel like you can't handle some mundane thing doesn't mean that you're not going to have a passion for something that is going to feel more important to other people. And so it's like, it's, that's not really a blocker. In fact, the people that kind of do extreme things like I have done, like move continents and learn whole other languages and things like that, I often find that the people who have that drive actually have trouble doing more mundane things more often. Like it, it, it tracks the other way. There's also something to be said about like longer term goals just being 
repetitive, like doing repetitively, you know, mundane tasks akin to doing the dishes. It's, it's one of those things where, okay, if you want to be good at piano or if you want to be good at, you know, learning Japanese, well, you're going to have to practice the piano. You're going to have to go do flashcards and you're just going to have to keep doing that. And just over the not necessarily repetitive nature, but just the experience over time will get you to that level of expertise and mastery and, and get those two and, and get you to that place of, you know, a, a end goal of, I want to work at Sega. Um, I want to work at Nintendo or whatever. Yeah. And that guy that worked for Sega, like he had a passion for video games and he lived in Japan and he was, but he, he grew up bilingual in English and Spanish because of where he's from in Europe. And he had no interest in learning Japanese and he could understand about 50% of it. And most sort of daily Japanese he could understand because he lived here for a while, but like he, he had no interest in learning Japanese and just didn't do that. And, and so like there's certain things that certain people are going to have a passion for doing and want to do. And there are other things that they're not going to have a passion for and are going to be less likely to do. I definitely would have expected learning Japanese to be a prerequisite for getting a producer job at Sega. Yeah, it wasn't like it's, uh, so he worked, he worked initially for Sega Europe and then now officially he's Sega of America through London. And he, he manages a lot of the back, like I, I shouldn't say a lot of, like he manages the Western back catalog for Sega right now. And I, his Japanese experience matters. Like it, like the fact that he is, he can be in a Japanese meeting and know how to act like that goes a long way. But it's not a like him being able to speak j- business Japanese is not a prerequisite. Like there's a reason I was his interpreter for years. Like is because like he just he couldn't do it. Like yeah, I, I can't remember how much I've talked about this on the show before. But when you were saying um, you were making the comparison of Frog Fractions versus the creation of Frog Fractions, which might have been a one-off, versus the other games I shipped. Yeah. Frog Fractions kind of was a passion project one-off where I just like, I I kind of fell into that project and did it by accident. And notably, when I did the Kickstarter for the second one, I didn't really know how to ship a game. Like I'd done it, but I didn't know how to work on purpose on a, on a project long-term under the different, you know moods that you get into like you can't just work when you're passionate about it when this is your full-time job well yeah and while people are watching you right right you have to be able to you have to be able to work on a project so i had to figure out like coping strategies like how do i how do i as a as a human work on purpose every day towards a goal Uh, and that was something something i needed to learn and i learned that like in my mid-30s yeah, I think that's really common. Yeah, uh, as someone who's been going through that, I I also agree that it's probably fairly common, especially if you're able to just kind of not necessarily coast, but have some sort of ability to kind of, you know, pull stuff out of a hat and be like, oh, yes, it's done. But, you know, that, that second project where you had to learn how to do project management and also determine, okay, how do you know that a game is done? Because you can always keep tweaking, keep tweaking, keep tweaking things. Yep. But there's no like rule book as to, you know, you know, a game is done when X and it's, it's hard to get a, you know, a feel for that. If your first project was a success but also you were doing it as a hobby versus like a full-time, you know, job. Yep. Yeah. It's very different. Very different. But yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm here and I have the, I have the job that I have basically because I can ship games by myself. Yeah. I was going to ask, and maybe Esper can cut this if it's too personal, but like, I was wondering, you mentioned having a, a day job now is, so is your day job in the games industry or is it something different? It is. Um, I was interested mostly from the standpoint of like when you said that I wanted to know if you felt like uh, you had not that you had like sold out or something, but that like you had sort of left games professionally or if it was still game related. And so maybe it was still somewhat fulfilling in that way. So it's still game related and I'm happy to work in games, but I am 
you know, it is it is a bummer to not be working on my own projects. And I, it's difficult for me to imagine getting back to that place where, like, now that I'm supporting a wife and kid. Yeah, I get that, yeah. Like, those games, the, the games that I made were never super profitable. They were just barely profitable and for like someone who was just scraping by by themselves, living on their own. And I'm not and and the thing is like I actually did get my miracle. Like I got funding for the hat DLC. Like I got funding to the level of like this is a decent job, decent, you know, annual pay for the, the for this gig. That's where contract work seems a little bit rough. And then there's also kind of the the weird medium where Okay, sure, you can go turn the corner and then go work at, you know, a fintech company or something like that and make a paycheck with plenty of zeros and, and a comma or two in it. But I, I also know that games industry also runs on like the, hey, you're working in games. Isn't that great? And like, yeah. And, 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 and that's kind of hard to go to the grocery store and be like, did you know that I work in games? And it's just like, cool story. Uh, you still have to buy these groceries with money. Yeah, that was kind of academia too, and why I left academia was that the the amount of work I was putting in on the stuff I found interesting, like I was given a lot of latitude to do a lot of the stuff I wanted to do, but then when I looked at the paycheck and the amount of work, it was like, it this doesn't make a lot of sense to continue doing this when I have to support, like you said, a wife and a kid, and so it's like, I'm going to go get the IT job <laughs> and work in enterprise, and that that pays a lot better. So, yep. And uh, that's all the time we have for topic Lords. All right. Thank you very much. Good it was stuff. a lot of fun. Yep. Sishead, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? So the best place to find me is on Twitter at, at Sishet K Faber, you know, spelled like, you know, C I S H E T and then K Faber, like you're a wrestling fan. And then also I'm on the topic Lords discord sporadically. I try to be there but I do a weird thing where I'll like check in like once a month and then post nonstop for like 24 hours. Then I'll just like forget it exists for a while. And so I apologize for that. But those are the two places you can find me. <laughs> uh, so you've, you successfully fooled me into thinking you're at pretty active in the topic Lord's discord. <laughs> so good job. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And phone, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Um, not, not to creep anybody out but I'm in your pocket right now. Whoa. Uh, I'm on the Topic of Lords Discord. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I don't post, so don't bother. Um, but yeah, this was great. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. This episode was edited by Esper Quinn, who can also edit your episode if you contact them on Twitter. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com, and you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!